If you have your Bibles tonight, go ahead and turn to the book of Proverbs if you want to. As usual, as we study the book of Proverbs, we're going to be kind of jumping around a little bit, but talking about what it means to be holy, happy, and healthy in the time that we have tonight. Abraham Lincoln once said that every man over 40 is responsible for his own face. That's disturbing to me now that I'm over 40. I don't guess I can blame anyone else. And I guess what he was trying to say is that no one can dictate your happiness. You know, no one can dictate the mood that you're in or be able to make that a thing for you. You have to be able to choose it. And I think that's true because we're not pawns of our circumstances, you know, that we can't... uh, can't uh, take responsibility for what's happening in our lives. Tonight, I want us to see how we can really be happy, healthy, and holy in a new year. Because in 2018, we have a really good opportunity to do that. And it's a great witness to the lost world when we're happy, healthy, and holy. Uh, And I don't talk about this in terms, let's just go ahead and get the disclaimer out for any of you who are waiting for the wealth and health and prosperity gospel to start. It's not what it's about. We're just not going to get there. Uh, But I do think that you can be healthy, and medicine actually will prove that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, Proverbs 17.22 says this, A joyful heart is good medicine. But a broken spirit dries up the bones. For years, scientists have actually been finding a connection between people who are religious and people who are healthy. It's a funny thing. They, uh, they can uh, absolutely prove to you that when you believe in something outside of yourselves, a higher power, and you have a happy attitude about it, it does something in your life. It has an ability to affect your overall health. And I think it's funny because I recently read a study that said no matter what you think about religion, it actually plays a significant role in people's overall psyche. People who are re- religious are generally happier in life. Well, that's not a surprise to us, is it? It wouldn't be a surprise to us to know that when you serve the Lord or when you know the Lord, there's happiness that comes along with that. We didn't need a study to tell us that because the Bible's actually been telling us that for centuries. We know that a joyful heart is like a healing balm. The word Solomon used for medicine in uh, Proverbs 17:22 implies recuperation. This idea that when you have a happy heart, it actually aids in recuperation. A joyful heart will literally make you better. You'll feel better, you'll act better, you'll look better. You'll definitely be a better person when you have a happy heart. It's a joyful heart that brings good medicine to us. But Proverbs 14.30 also says that the heart plays a role in our body. It's interesting. Proverbs 14.30 says a tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. When it says that a peaceful heart or a tranquil heart is life to the body, but a person who's carried away by passion that's had rotten in their bones, it's not talking about the kind of passion that you need to be passionate about a hobby or work or an endeavor that you're going through. That's not the word that it's used. The word literally that he uses there is when you have a red face. Well, when you have a red face, it generally means you're what? Angry. Maybe embarrassed, right? And what he's saying is when you get your heart right and you make it calm within you and you're not kind of taken away and carried away by your emotions, you're your emotions, your passions, what happens is there's a great benefit to your life. Scripture is not actually saying to be listless. That This the word for passion is, is a negative kind of passion that would be harmful to us. I was watching a football game the other day, and I think I mentioned to Sarah Kate, I said, that coach is not going to live to be very old. And she said, why? And I said, he's so angry. Look at him. You ever see people just walking around and veins popping out of their heads, you know, and screaming all the time? You're not going to live long. You're a heart attack waiting to happen, right? I mean, it's an amazing thing how that works in your life. When you allow your emotions to overtake you, it's impossible to be happy. It doesn't work. When you're not happy, you're not going to be healthy very long. 
But a tranquil heart is different. When your heart is quiet, it calms down your entire body. It brings a sense of calmness to you. You have, you have the ability now to not allow your, your, your emotions to dictate what's going to happen to you. When your heart is tranquil, you're taking those emotions and you're processing them and you're allowing God to do something in your life that's a little bit different. You can't have a calm heart when you're worried all the time, when you're upset all the time. That's a funny thing because anxiety is something that weighs us down. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. When you become anxious, it's like putting a weight vest around your body. I know it's New Year's and maybe some of you have decided that it's time to take up running or jogging. The scripture, I was reminded by my dad's cousin, Independent Baptist pastor said that only the evil man runneth when no man pursueth. So running is something not good for you. Had to consider that for a moment. But if you think about going out for a jog tomorrow, I mean, it's going to be cold, right? It's maybe early, dark, before you have to go to work. Difficult for sure. Imagine just how hard that is and then you throw a weight vest on, right? And just like, you know, you really hate yourself today. You're going to put a weight vest on to make yourself even more miserable as you go out. That's what anxiety does. The scripture says it weighs your heart down. Now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about anxiety because we preached an entire sermon about that, but I do think it is worth, worth mentioning just in reflection if you're struggling with anxiety, you ought to go back and listen to that sermon. You can find it online, watch video, whatever. But when we get anxious, what we're worried about are things that we can't control. We're worried about the future. And we start this cycle. And I don't know how it is in your life, but it, it can generally go like this for me. You know, I had a hole in my heart. Yeah, I know they fixed that, right? Yeah, but you never know what else could happen. I mean, you might have a heart attack, blood clot, stroke, cancer. I mean, you can just go on and on. You can spend a whole week worrying about things you don't even have control over. And the scripture says that the cure for anxiety is when we unplug from anxiety and we plug into prayer. Paul said that in Philippians chapter 4, that that's the cure for us. When you get anxious, it weighs you down. And I just think that's one of the greatest tools that Satan uses against believers is trying to get our hearts anxious because when you're anxious about things you can't control, it actually causes you to be where you're carrying a burden. And you're not supposed to be carrying a burden. Jesus is supposed to carry your burdens. Now, we're not talking about the storms of life. You know, we're not talking about something that's real. You know, we all go through that, and even the greatest Christians, uh, they go through that. And I would just say this, uh, you're not really a Christian if you've never despaired a little bit. You're not really a Christian if you've never been through the dark night of the soul. Uh, you're not really faced anything, right? Even the, the person who is our namesake here, Adoniram Judson, you may not realize this, but one time in despair, he'd been in prison for 20 months, 20 plus months, while he was in prison, his wife was dying, caring for him, caring for a daughter that was ultimately going to die. He gets out of prison, his wife dies, his daughter dies, his dad dies. Adoniram Judson literally dug his own grave and sat by it, waiting for God to call him home. That's despair. That's weighed down, right? But he didn't stay there. He, he didn't last right there. He began to find the joy of the Lord Again, they were dark days in his life to be sure, but even in the storms, we can find the joy of the Lord to be a great benefit in our lives. Even when we're struggling, we can find the joy of the Lord to be something amazing. I think the thing that we're always looking for is something immovable. 
We want something that, that doesn't move. We want something that is firm in its foundation. And that's really what the joy of the Lord is because the joy of the Lord is immovable. But so many times we try to place those things that we want to be immovable in things that are always going to change. I find that in my own life, one of the reasons I like going back to Mississippi and visiting family is because that little small town, it never changes. The family farm is still there. They still don't have a stoplight. I like that, right? But even as I think about that and I think that that's immovable, my cousin doesn't have a dairy on that farm anymore. There's some things that are different. There's new restaurants in that town and my other cousin's not the mayor of the town anymore. I mean, things change. All those things in our lives that we don't want to be, you know, we don't ever want to change, they're movable. They're going to change. Things happen to those things, but the joy of the Lord, God is immovable. He doesn't change. He doesn't bend. And when you set your joy on that, you really have something. I think that's why you find your joy in God and nothing else, because anything that's a moving target won't work. Listen to Proverbs 15, 15. All the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. All the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. A cheerful heart allows you to live in this continual state of feasting. For some of you, that's like living on a continual cruise ship, right? You're able to eat whenever you want. They always bring you whatever you want. There's, it never runs out of food. You want chocolate at three in the morning, there's chocolate. You want a hamburger at two in the afternoon, there's a hamburger. It's a continual feast, right? There's always enough is what he's saying. And that's what a cheerful heart does. It allows you to keep feasting. You keep getting nourishment. You're, you're able to rejoice in that. A feast is not a, a somber time, right? A feast is when you gather together with your friends and you celebrate something or your family and you celebrate something and you pull out lots of food and you don't just make a sandwich and say here you go I mean it's a feast right that's what he says happens when you have a cheerful heart joy provides a great time for everybody but it does something else joy gives you strength and the joy of the Lord in particular Nehemiah 8 10 he said, the joy of the Lord is my strength Nehemiah was facing difficult circumstances you may remember him he was tasked with rebuilding the walls of a city and he had spiritual forces working against him that were manifesting themselves as real people, right? These people were, were fighting against him. He, they didn't want him to accomplish his task. Nehemiah was, uh, easily could have been despairing about that and instead he said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. He had a physical opposition but it was spiritual opposition and he chose the joy of the Lord and found strength in it. Maybe you've been at work or at school, trying to meet a deadline and working hard through the night and, and just kind of grinding away and doing all that. And if you're ever with a group of friends, you know what it's like, right? If, if you're really kind of up against it or you're out and, and you just feel like that you don't have enough energy to keep going, but there's this deadline, you just have to do it. And you know what it's like when somebody kind of brings some, some uh, joke to the moment or whatnot or tells a joke. It, it, it makes you laugh and all of a sudden you can kind of find some energy to get a little bit further down the road, right? That's because that's what joy does to you. It provides strength. And the joy of the, of the Lord, even in great times of stress, provides a great strength to us and does something to our soul. A cheerful heart has a continual feast. And I want to just encourage you, if you're in a rough patch right now, to find your strength in the joy of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you why it matters. Joy matters for three different reasons to God. God's concerned with your happiness, your joy, because joy, number one, reveals the condition of your spirit. You may remember that when Paul was incarcerated, he wrote a 
letter to the Philippian church in Philippians 1, 18, he said something amazing. He said, what then only that in every way, whether in the pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He talks about joy several times. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Here's a man who's incarcerated, but who was not allowing his circumstances to dictate what his joy was going to be because his joy had been set on something that was immovable. Incarceration is movable. There's something that is fixed for a moment. You're incarcerated and maybe you'll get out. In his case, he didn't. But it never changed who he was because he saw what God was doing in his life. He was seeing people saved. You remember him talking about this. I've been able to share with everybody, the Praetorian guards hearing about God. They're hearing about Jesus Christ who has saved me from my sins. Paul's saying that and he says, there's great reason for us to rejoice in that. Let that sink in for a moment. Here's a man in jail talking about joy and saying, look, let's rejoice together always. As long as Christ is proclaimed, it's great. He doubled down and said, I'll rejoice and rejoice again. It's amazing, isn't it? Lou Holtz, famous coach, South Carolina, Notre Dame, ESPN analyst, once said that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. There were things outside of Paul's control. He couldn't determine how long he was going to stay or whether he was going to get out of jail, but what he could do is use it for an opportunity for God to increase his joy as he saw people being saved and he had the opportunity to share with people he allowed his heart to refocus on the immovable God and that set the tone for his letter which was joy second reason it's important to God is joy is part of your salvation if you're a Christian you have something to be joyful about right you have an opportunity to thank God every day and be joyful in salvation when Peter thought about salvation it caused him to break out into a doxology you may know doxology if you've ever been in a Baptist church uh, sometimes we sing the doxology. Now, this is not that doxology, but it's like that. It, it's a spontaneous response of joy that he was offering. Listen to what he said, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Can we just kind of run through that for a second? Here's a guy who's thinking about what it means to be saved, and he says, let's praise God for this, because according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born. God in mercy did something to us when we couldn't do it for ourselves. God saved us. We were born to a living hope. Not a hope that's dead, but a living hope. How do we know we serve a living God? I was thinking about this the other day, and it just struck me. As I was reading the scripture in the New Testament again, when Jesus said to some of the people that were listening to him and kind of talking about what it was like to serve Abraham, he said, look, we don't serve the God of the dead because he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is that God, meaning they are not dead. They're alive. We're serving a living God. Our loved ones aren't far from us. They're right there just on the other side of the veil of life and death. And they are alive in Christ. And so he says that we have a hope through the resurrection. Well, why do we need hope? Because we're all going to face it one day. Death. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is the resurrection of our bodies and our souls to obtain what? An inheritance which is imperishable. Again, immovable. It doesn't change. It's not like the inheritance that you're going to receive on this earth if you've received an inheritance or maybe you're thinking you're going to receive an inheritance. Those things are perishable. They don't last. The greatest inheritance is junk. It doesn't last. It tarnishes. It fades. He says it's undefiled. It will not fade away. And it's reserved for you. Don't you love it when you go to a restaurant and have a reservation? It's great, isn't it? All the other suckers standing in line outside in the cold, right? And you walk right in and you say, hey, uh, we had a reservation. Glad you're here. Come and take your table. And you just wave at everybody as you go in. They're all bundled up in their scarf. You're taking yours off, right? Reservation, something reserved for you. It has your name on it. That's joy, folks. That's joy. When you get down... When you're struggling with joy, you need to think back to the day you were saved. Think back to that time when the burden of sin was lifted off of you. And if that doesn't do it for you, start getting around some people who are on the front lines of seeing people saved. Share your faith with someone. Be around someone who's just been saved. Be around somebody who's a new disciple in Christ. You will find joy because there is joy in salvation. It's a beautiful thing for us. When you see the power of the gospel change someone from death to life, That's joy. That doesn't tarnish. That doesn't fade. It won't rust. Third thing, joy affects our service. When you're joyful, it's easy to serve. It's great to serve. It fills you up. But joy is the key ingredient. I bet Solomon kind of knew a little bit about this from his own father, David, who loved serving the Lord. He loved serving the Lord. He talked about wanting to be in the house of the Lord all the time. He talked about wanting to know the Lord. It's an interesting thing when we think about it like that. Joy is the key ingredient. If we're going to have a great 2018, we need to be joyful. No matter what else is going on, because we have a fixed, immovable God. But you know, there's another thing we haven't really talked about, and it's what I led the title of the sermon with, and that was holiness. Holy, happy, healthy. That's an interesting thing. When you talk about holiness, it's one of those things that we know we need, but we're not exactly sure sometimes that we really want it. It's kind of like, Lord, break the chains, just break them slowly. I kind of like where I'm at, you know? That's the wrong attitude. It's the wrong attitude. Because when we're out of the will of God, something happens to us that goes back to being healthy. I want to read it for you. David wrote about it in his own life in Psalm 38. And see if this resonates with you when you've been out of the will of God. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath. Chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Have you ever messed up and been sick about it? 
I mean, really, where you've been just sick because of something you've done. I have. It's a pretty rotten feeling, isn't it? When you know what you've done and you know that you've disappointed the Lord and it makes you literally sick. I've seen people like that. And if you're a believer today, I bet you know that experience too. Because you know what it's like when you've made the wrong choice and you're holding on to that sin and you haven't been absolved of that yet. You haven't repented of that yet. And you're holding it. And God begins, as David says, to pierce you with his arrows to get your attention. That's a rough, rough spot. When a believer sins, they're in dangerous territory because they're outside of the will of the God and they're playing with fire. In fact, they're paying rent to a master that they should never belong to. They've been freed from sin, right? But yet sometimes we run back and it's almost like we run back to sin and put our hands out and say, go ahead and bind me up again. I'm ready. I want to get comfortable again. It's all I've ever known. It's hard to break out of this. How do I get away from this? But you know, that's what Satan wants us to do. He loves to be the master. He loves for you to pay rent to him when you don't have to. You have a home in glory. You don't have to pay rent to him. And yet he loves to bind us up. Hebrews says that we need to avoid the sin that so easily entangles us, ensnares us, right? It's always crouching at the door. And sometimes we believe that God's trying to maybe keep something fun from us or that God's trying to do something. We don't understand it, so we don't like it, and we really don't want to be that holy. I mean, we want to go to heaven, but being holy, that's something different. I don't know if I want to go that far, and yet we know that God has our best interest in mind. I want you to think about something. I want you to run this to its logical conclusion. Is God terrible? Is God a killjoy? Is God really a person who doesn't want you to have fun? Is God really someone who would say, you know what, I know that would be good for you, but you really don't need it. I'd rather you have what's bad for you. He doesn't do that. He would never do that. He's not a tyrant. He's not a killjoy. And so you have to ask yourself this question, well, who knows more about my life, me or God? The one who's lived eternally or the one who has lived for a few years? Well, obviously, when we run that to its logical conclusion, we see exactly the truth of that, that it's God. And we need to stay away from some things, don't we? Because we know that God has our best interest in mind and that God knows what we need, when we need, and how we need it. There are some things that are fixed in this universe like gravity. You jump off the house for a little flight and you're going to be hurt. It doesn't work. In the same way, you run up against what God says is best for your life, you're going to be hurt. When you choose another option. You can try, but it doesn't work. David later wrote Psalm 84 in verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield, and the Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. David learned that God was taking care of him in every way and never withheld anything good from him. God's not trying to bore your life. He's trying to give you a fulfilling life, and it comes through holiness. Sometimes I think we ask the wrong question. Uh, our teenagers sometimes ask this question like this when they're thinking about dating somebody. When they talk about a physical relationship they might have, they'll start to say it like this, how far is really too far to go? That's the wrong question. The right question is how holy can I be, right? 
The question for you adults is, is not how much of the world can I have and still have Jesus, it's how much of Jesus can I have? And how little of the world can I have and still exist in this world, right? I mean, sometimes we're afraid. I mean, I know what it's like. You know what it's like. I, nobody wants to be known as the Jesus freak, you know, and so sometimes we recoil against that a little bit, kind of just want to go along with the crowd and whatnot. And, and let me tell you something, kids. Your parents are struggling with this too. Don't let them tell you they're not. We all feel that way. But don't we know deep down that what God says is best is what we need to do? And that living a life of holiness, ultimately, when we do what God says to do, does what? Well, makes you happy. When you're happy, you're healthy. Holy, happy, healthy. Sometimes we get the order confused. We think, you know, I really need to be happy. If I'm really happy, I really need to be healthy, and we'll worry about holiness later. It doesn't work that way. Holy, happy, healthy. When you do what God's asking you to do, you will be happy. You will be blessed because he won't withhold any good thing from you. He will be a sun and a shield for your life. And as he does that, and you begin to understand that what Jesus said was really true, that there was a thief in John 10, 10 that was really coming to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but he had come to give you life and life abundantly, full, then all of a sudden you begin to see that holy's not so bad, is it? Holy looks pretty good because when you're walking in holiness, yeah, your life, your life might seem boring to those on the outside, but you know what I call that? It's drama-free living. That's not bad, folks. I was thinking about this uh, not long ago. Have you ever watched those crime shows like they come on Saturday night? You know, it's one of those ABC mystery whodunits and they have the detectives and everything and somebody's been hurt or killed or something like that. You ever know when those always start? Two in the morning. They've been out at two in the morning. What are people doing at two in the morning? I live a pretty boring life. But I've got some odds for you. If you're home by 11 with the door shutting in bed, your chances of living a long time go way, way up. Just watch those shows. I'm just telling you. Think about it. People say, well, that's so boring. Boring what? Missing out on all the pain and the suffering of living in sin? Missing out on what David called of being doubled over and not being able to get up, of being benumbed? That sounds horrid, right? It sounds awful of having God stick arrows in you because of his sin, right? No, nobody wants that. And yet sometimes we think, oh, I'll get to holy later. Start with holy. Then you'll be happy. Then you'll be healthy. Can I just challenge us as a church this year that in 2018, you make it your highest aim to be a holy man, woman, to know God, in the fullness of life abundantly and to live holy so that you will be happy and trust him that what he says to do will not withhold any good thing from you while you're doing it. Trust him. It may seem boring to people on the outside, but I call it joyful, exciting, and a life filled with joy is a good life. I want to ask you to pray with me right now. Is there anything in your life that's keeping you from being holy? 
if there is, would you just take a moment and before the Lord, make it your highest aim to be holy this year? Is it what you're watching on TV, what you're listening to, your thought life? Are your emotions running away with you? You don't have a tranquil heart. Maybe tonight it's hard for you to find joy because you're in one of those rough patches. Kind of like Nehemiah was in. Would you claim the promise that the joy of the Lord will be your strength? And when you can't find that joy, gather some people around you to pray for you. And could we take a moment and just rejoice in our own salvation? When was the last time you thanked God for that and really meant it? Heavenly Father, we want 2018 to be a great, great year for us. And Lord, we'd love to be happy and we'd love to be healthy. But we know that you're most concerned with us being holy. Father, forgive us where we've fallen short and restore the joy of our salvation. We ask that you do a work in our lives tonight to prepare us for what's going to happen this year. Father, for the ones who are struggling tonight in a season of doubt or despair, I pray that they would find their strength in the joy of the Lord. Thank you that you never move. Thank you that you're constant and faithful. Thank you that you have saved us and we rejoice in our salvation tonight. And Father, our great joy would be to see others come to know you. And we ask that you give us opportunities this week as we're out in our lives on mission, on purpose to share Christ with someone. Give us a great year this year, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.